So today's reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 32. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that of your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of her sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Don't mind me. Um, why she been busy up here? Um, <laughs> It's like a workbook. Uh, let's see. Ah. Hope that work. Let's hope for the best there. Okay. How are we? Oh, wow. <laughs> I can tell it just gets more and more stressful. I can just tell. I can feel, feel the air. Um, it's a busy time of year, isn't it? I mean, I think it's, what is it, quarters? What is the name for the halfway to the midterm level? Or I guess maybe some of you are in full-fledged midterms at this point. So, ish, not. Some of you just writing papers in your seniors, so it's okay. Um, anyway, are we doing okay overall? Okay. So, I, you know, I don't, realize, I don't think I realized this until this morning, but uh, the passage that we read and what I'm going to talk about, uh, we're talking about anger and lust on Valentine's Eve. <laughs> so... <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm just trying to set you up right. So, anyway, <laughs> I'm Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister. I'm already embarrassed. And uh, this is RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. It's a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and you all, uh, wherever you are and however you are. And we mean that. We really want to be a place that represents every kind of person. Uh, so no matter who you are, uh, where you come from personal background-wise, or what your scene is on campus, we hope you can feel welcomed here. Um, we want to be for every scene and for everyone. And we mean that to the point even where, if you don't, um, we mean that even where, in regards to where you are, Jesus or Christianity. You could be convinced, or you could be unconvinced, you could be a believer, or you could be a spiritual skeptic, or again, you could feel more comfortable somewhere in between, or none of the above. We're just glad you're here. And so thank you, especially if you're new and you took the time uh, to stop by and say hi. Uh, thanks for your time, uh, especially this time of year. And thanks for the risk that involves, especially if you're new. So I really appreciate that. Okay. 
So this semester, we've been, what we're doing here, large group, we've been looking at the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, and particularly this book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. And so, um, basically, this is a really, really famous speech. It's worldwide and world historical famous. And this speech is famous because it's one of those things that it's sort of a central Christian reading. Anytime a generation or a culture wants to figure out what Christianity is about to get a proper take on Christianity, they study this speech. Like generation after generation, culture after culture, including us. And that tells them, that tells us what it means to be a Christian. But here's the problem, whether you call yourself Christian or not, we all tend to read the Sermon on the Mount the same way two more chapters of good advice that I should really just follow. But if Jesus's words to us here or elsewhere are mere like self-care to-do list, then we're going to try to do, and we'll, we'll try to do it with all of our strength and our results are going to be mixed depending upon our level of self-honesty. Instead, I'd like to encourage us, like to, I'd like to encourage us to what I think Jesus is inviting us to in the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing us what it looks like to be with him, to live our lives intentionally with him in this world. And he's also asking us to see the world and our lives in a new way, with spiritual imagination. And I'm going to be honest, this week in particular, it's going to take a lot of spiritual imagination. Because <laughs> this is a hard topic. In RUF large group, we're committed to reading and studying the Bible, what's called expositionally. Expositionally is a fancy word that says we try to go through biblical books verse by verse and chapter by chapter when we can. Um, and so that does two things. The first and foremost, that teaches all of us how to read the Bible better. Um, God has given us the Bible. He's laid it out in genres and in a format that's generally best understood chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, as opposed to sort of pointing to random verses with your eyes closed or fortune cookie style okay so that's one thing the second thing is that um, reading and talking about the bible this way verse by verse chapter by chapter in progress doesn't let me get away with cherry picking i can't cherry pick the best passages that i really like and i know that you'll like so every week's a win which is what i really want to do in my heart of hearts like all week i want to do that to be honest okay <laughs> and then I, i'd also and this is why i'd love to skip passages like this I really would. It's a really difficult passage. It's uncomfortable to me, and it's uncomfortable to our cultural moment. So I want to say in advance that I personally and professionally get a lot of what Jesus speaks about here um, is going to be feel fragile to us. It's going to feel fragile to talk about anger and lust and divorce and hell. Um, I don't know if it could be a more offensive topics list in American 21st century Christianity. Um, and so Jesus is really pressing into these areas of our persons and our personal stories that are brittle and painful and maybe chipped to the touch. And Jesus is speaking about these delicate, finely edged issues in a way that's puzzlingly, puzzle, I'm going to try to say this, puzzling, <laughs> puzzling, <laughs> it's, it's over, <laughs> let's pray, uh, puzzlingly. <laughs> puzzlingly blunt. Okay. That works really well on paper on the notes section of this, but not in the speech. Okay. Confusing. That's what we're <laughs> confusingly blunt. Okay. If not over the top, right? He is the bull in the China shop, right? On purpose. He's, he's 
causing a mess. But I'm not going to be the PR man for Jesus. It's way above my pay level, okay? Uh, but I would instead invite us, you and me, together to give the benefit of the doubt, to give a common, shareable view to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus might just be truthful. He might just be knowing what he's doing here. And so I'd love you to step in that posture and to kind of prime our hearts, hear these words from Tom Wright. Jesus is not just giving moral commands here. He's unveiling a whole new way of being human. No wonder it looks strange. But Jesus pioneered this way, and he invites us to follow him in it. Okay, so that's what we're up to. With all of that, of course, we just need to pray. So can you pray with me, for me, and for us? Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for the opportunity to to be with these students, to, to be able to talk about things that are uncomfortable, that, um, that I personally would love to avoid, um, but that you compel us to talk about because we need to talk about them and they're good to study and they're important for us. Um, and I pray that you be with all of the sensitivities, the antennae and the alarm bells that are going off um, in so many hearts and minds right now about these different topics, um, friends' experiences, personal experiences, family experiences, And I just pray that you would help us not to hide those from you, but that you'd help us to unclench our fists and hold them before you. And I pray that your word would speak over them and that uh, we would look at them afresh and that we would be changed by your words to us and that perhaps even the way we relate to all these people and all of these things would change. Jesus, you have the power to do that, to refresh us in that way. And I pray that you do that through your word, even in this time. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So some of you know this, some of you don't. I didn't grow up particularly of any faith or tradition. Um, I became a Christian at Davidson here my sophomore year. Um, Yes, it was a long time ago. Okay. So since that point, I've been able to take a few very meaningful trips uh, a lot of them were international, um, or a couple of them were international, just a few of these trips. And while, like, each time I took this trip after I became a Christian, I found myself confused and filled with doubts about the Christian faith. There was a moment in each of these three trips I'm thinking of, and I'll do two of them, that felt confusing and doubt-filled. Okay, so during the spring break of my junior year of college, a friend of mine, Tom, made a bold move, and he decided he was going to see about a girl from Davidson who was studying abroad in Turkey. And so he needed a wingman, and it was cheap to travel then, and I wanted to see some Greek and Roman ruins on Turkey's Mediterranean coast, so there we were. I spontaneously bought a ticket, cashed my savings out, and was in Turkey. Uh, And it was this sunny, crisp March day, and Tom and I were like practically by ourselves in the middle of the spring. It was um, pretty close to 9-11 at that point. And we were walking around and climbing all over these different ruins and sites of an ancient city. I think it was Ephesus. We had the place to ourselves and it was just like gleaming with white marble, right? Statues, mammoth columns, pillars with busts, uh, just kind of image after image of gods and goddesses and famous historical figures. But that sort of ancient city was marbled and it sparkled in the sunlight of the spring and it was just like this gorgeous scene. I I can't even describe it. But I started to get down to academic business because at the time I was a classics major and that's why I had come. 
I guess I had come to support Tom too, but really to, to see these ruins. And so I started kind of doing the close inspection and I noticed almost at once that all of these beautiful figures, especially the statuary, had been disfigured. I started looking very closely at these dramatic faces and just above the brow line, I noticed what at first looked like a swastika. But as I was silently cursing the Nazis and their bad taste in my brain, I realized that was what was actually carved into the smooth marble foreheads of almost every statue in this city wasn't a swastika, it was a Christian cross. Gods, goddesses, historical or anonymous people, bust or full-bodied statue, ancient Turkish Christians had taken a chisel and carved a crude cross into these works of magnificent art. I was confused, actually pretty hurt and stunned. And so I kind of came back and I started reading about it. And I discovered that this was done to repay previously powerful pagan neighbors. And it was due to a perceived religious threat from the statues themselves. Simply put, they marred the beauty of these statues out of a smoldering anger. Years later, um, during my first winter of attending graduate school to become a pastor, my family celebrated kind of a string of birthdays. It was an extravaganza and it kind of took me and my wife here to Italy. And it was a trip of a lifetime that peaked in Rome and it was this top destination for anyone who had studied and majored classics like me and was studying Christian theology and history like me. So I was stoked. Okay, and so I remember touring the Sistine Chapel and St. Peter's Basilica and admiring all the beautiful paintings and statues of master artists like Bernini and Michelangelo. And in these, uh, in these works housed in a church, I remember gazing at this naked human form, exquisitely rendered, pulsing vitality, bodies po- poised, posed, frozen in sort of the very act of desire. But again, if you looked closely, many of these naked human statues and paintings weren't actually fully naked. They had ugly, often clumsily painted or carved scraps of clothing or literal fig leaves over the most private of their areas. Again, totally confused and hurt, stunned. Again, afterwards, I read a little bit further and I found out that the Council of Trent and the Pope Alexander VII had ordered Michelangelo's protege and Bernini himself to go back and to paint and carve fig leaves and cloth fragments just so to cover them. Marring this human beauty out of objectifying lust. So I realize like all of this is extremely confusing and difficult to talk about, even in like the art history slash travel section of our minds and hearts. Okay, but in Turkey and in Rome, I think my confusion and hurt stemmed from seeing the effects of well-meaning people turn the beauty of human beings into something else. Faced with a complex desire against other people, people like us, I can sometimes choose simmering anger. Faced with a complex desire towards other people, people like us, I can sometimes choose objectifying lust. So because we lack control in the midst of other people's complexity, because we feel we're either wronged when others feel right, or we're unattractive when other people feel attractive to us, we turn to the power that anger 
and lust promise us. In the words of Dale Bruner, the commentator, lust like anger seeks power over another person. Both anger and lust put other people down, though by seemingly opposite emotions. In both, we manifest a deep insecurity about ourselves. We seek to bring others under our power. And if we succeed in doing so, we validate ourselves to ourselves. Okay, so likewise, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 32, Jesus is shockingly yet carefully telling us two related truths. Because life can feel out of control, we turn to anger and lust. Because life sometimes feels out of control, we turn to anger and lust. But only Jesus can give us the validation and the affirmation that our anger and our lust are longing for. So Jesus begins this blueprint for a more authentic, a more lovely way to be human by addressing us in the real world, in the midst of our anger and our lust. He speaks into these ways of grasping for control, each in turn. And you'll see this on your handout. We see, look first at verses 21 through 26. Jesus is redefining our anger in the context of murder. And he's diffusing our anger with his validation of us. Okay? He's redefining our anger in the context of murder. And he's diffusing our anger with validation. And then verses 27 through 32, Jesus redefines our lust in the context of adultery. And then soothes our lust with his affirmation of us. So he's taking, redefining our lust in the context of adultery, and then he's soothing or satisfying our lust through himself in verses 27 through 32. Okay? So we're going to begin how we usually begin, and we're going to look at um, the beginning of the passage, verses 21 through 26, and how Jesus approaches our anger. What's his approach to our anger? Okay? Look there with me if you would. So Jesus addresses our anger in a context, right? Starting from verse 21, he is correcting well-known misinterpretations of the Old Testament, of God's commands in the Old Testament. He's saying things like, you've heard it was said, but I myself, that's the emphasis in the Greek, I myself say to you, okay? So Jesus is quoting as said in this particular verse, verse 21, the sixth commandment given to Moses in the Old Testament. You shall not murder. Saying, you shall not murder. But then Jesus ups the ante and he says, don't stop there. He tells his audience, everyone who is angry with a brother or a sister, someone who's close or beloved, anyone who's angry with that person is liable. It's guilty and will be judged. And then as the anger escalates, so do the consequences. Whoever insults, that is, whoever calls a loved one raka. In the Aramaic, that means empty-headed. Okay, like airhead. Okay? Will be guilty before the heavenly justice court. And finally, when insults don't just involve intelligence and mental agility, they also involve moral composure or character. So anyone who says, you fool, is guilty and will end up in Gehenna. Gehenna is literally a burning trash heap that was used outside of Jerusalem. And it's the Greek word for hell used here. And also used with lust later in the passage. Okay? 
And so several of us here internally, maybe externally, I'm looking around, uh, harumph and cross our arms and go, just what I thought. Christianity is so conservative. Repress your feelings, Sid. No anger. No ability to be human here. Hello. But what is Jesus saying here is more nuanced than that takeaway. He's not just offending modern liberalism. He's also offending conservative traditionalism. Okay, equally, I would argue. For instance, let's just kind of go deep dive into some of the language he uses. The word translated is angry in verse 22 is this Greek word orgizo. Okay? This word for anger from uh, orge is a different kind of anger than a lot of other possibilities could have used. For instance, he could have, say, used thume. Thume, thumos, is like a knee-jerk, blow-the-top, blow momentary hot flash of anger, anger. Okay? But he chooses to use orge, which is the slow, simmering, bringing to a boil, nursing, refusing to let go kind of anger. Jesus is speaking to the I hold a grudge against you anger, the silent treatments, the stink eye anger, okay? And he's speaking to it because it has very little to do with the justice that we say it's all about. It instead builds to mental and moral insults and finally desires to cut somebody off completely, to delete or minimize them from our lives, to effectively murder them in our hearts. Because after all, they're dead to me. Okay? And the fact that there are kind of multiple kinds of anger with lesser severities only underlines the Bible's overall nuance about our emotions, which is so important to hear, okay? As a member and a pastor of the church of Jesus Christ, I can actually sincerely apologize. I do apologize for the several sermons and the well-meaning counsel that some of you have heard about never, ever getting angry. I can do this because that's not at all what the Bible says about anger. And nowhere does it say, don't get angry. If time permitted, which it doesn't, thankful for all of us, we do a survey of how Old Testament and New Testament speak about anger as something that we don't deny, that we don't suppress, that we don't stuff, but instead we wisely and in a timely fashion express it. Okay? So instead I'm just going to quote Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. This is a really beautifully succinct phrase about anger. It says... Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. I want you to hear this. You're just, you just got commanded to be angry. <laughs> How can that be wrong? <laughs> it was commanded. Okay? And it is possible to be angry without sinning. That is, without hurting yourself or other people or God. But anger is also, at the very same time, the context, the place, the emotional place in which sin oftentimes happens, in which hurt oftentimes explodes outward. It all depends on how we handle and how we express our anger. And Jesus is directly speaking to how we handle and express our anger in verses 23 through 26. Okay, verses 23 through 24 give us this intentionally exaggerated, exaggerated illustration this is just, I want you to picture this with me. There's a Jew from Galilee that travels three days south to offer a sacrifice in Jerusalem. Then this Jewish person, man or woman, he or she for, re- remembers, oh right, I hurt somebody back in Galilee, three days journey north. 
So it makes the three-day journey back up to Galilee, says they're sorry, then tracks three days back down south to Jerusalem, picks up the now rotted, dead animal that is uh, bacteria-bathed, offers this carcass that's totally rotting from the inside out to the holy, spotless, and transcendence God, and says, that's what you wanted? No. <laughs> Jesus isn't saying that. Jesus is saying something completely different. He's saying he's using this kind of absurdly exaggerated um, illustration to tell you, don't go and do likewise. But instead, he's making this dramatic point. He's got your attention. And he says this, own your mistakes urgently. Say with a roommate, ask for forgiveness now, not later. Okay. The thought is picked up again in verses 25 through 26, right? With the command to come to terms quickly with the person that you don't particularly like even. It's used this idea of ad- opponent or adversary. And he's saying, do that. Come to terms quickly before things escalate and get out of your ability to respond well. Settle things with another player on the team before the coach has to hear about it. Settle things on your hall with a roommate or with a hallmate before RLO has to get involved. <laughs> That's what he's saying, okay? You see, whether we're the offended party or the offending party, Jesus is showing us that we can feel anger, but we cannot nurse and feed this anger. I think Martin Luther is so helpful in this point. He's just a practical pastoral application. He explains the difference between feeling anger and nursing a grudge by describing temptations, like murderous anger, like pigeons, okay, that come and are constantly flying over our heads and our hearts and occasionally landing on the rooftop of our hearts, right? You can imagine the scene if you grew up in a remotely urban area. Okay, doves for that west. So we have a little control over the flight and landing patterns of these pigeons. We have really no control over that, right? They're flying all around us. And emotions like anger work this way. We can't control how often they occur. We can really not really regulate the circumstances in which they occur very easily. What triggers them, what doesn't, it's very hard to do that. I mean, otherwise you could live in a bubble and not talk to people, but that's pretty impossible. And so we don't have control over whether or not they land, but we do have control whether we let the anger roost. We do have control whether we savor and smack our lips over getting even in our heart of hearts. We have control over wishing another person's misery and failure instead of success. And so we get to, we need to shoo away the angry birds. I was just waiting for that hole. That was all I wanted to do. Uh, Not leading them to land for a long, we're not gonna let them lead, we're not gonna let them land for a long time, and we're not gonna let them make a home in our thoughts and hearts affection. We're gonna shoo them away but we cannot control them from landing. Does that make sense? You can't control what an emotion happens, but you can control how you handle that emotion. But the conservative traditional person takes Martin Luther's good advice as distinction and makes a resolution. From this moment forward, Sid, I won't let any momentarily anger roost. It won't grow roots. I'm going to chase it away, all those emotional birds, before they nest. But then Jesus offends this part of me that wants to get it right. With, and this plan that I have with verse 22, if you've ever held or you will ever hold a grudge, if you ever insult or ever will insult someone, even in your heart or your mind, you're doomed. And yet do you remember earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who thirst and hunger after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Remember earlier, Jesus told us, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, shorthand for commandments like murder, do not murder. But Jesus says, I have come to fulfill those exact commands for you. You see, Jesus refused to nurse his resentments. He denied anger's boil over during his lifetime. Instead, he bore on his brow and he bore on his shoulders the anger of the conservative traditional Jewish people and the modern liberal Roman people. He bore it down to the penny. (coughs) Their anger and our anger hammered Jesus to the cross, hands and feet on that cross, and it cut Jesus off from the land of the living and from the presence of the Father so that he might let me in. So that he might let us in, private resentments and all, as we are. And all we, get to, all we have to do is hunger and thirst for a righteousness that we cannot produce. Jesus' vindication of my wrongs. Jesus' justification to make me right. Right to myself and the watching and competing world and to God. And this was so amazing. Surprisingly, over time, as you meditate As I meditate on Jesus' vindication of me, I hold on to my anger less and less. Okay, so Jesus' vindication of our angry selves is paralleled by the affirmation of uh, of his affirmation, of Jesus' affirmation of us in the midst of our lust. Okay, And we see the way that Jesus affirms and redefines our lust in verses 27 through 32. Or point two. The good thing is there's two points. So we're almost there. Okay? So like with anger, Jesus addresses our lust in the context of correcting well-known misinterpretations of the Old Testament. Right? He does this whole thing again. You've heard it said, and I myself say to you. But this time he quotes the seventh commandment given to Moses. You shall not commit adultery. But once again, Jesus is not satisfied to let things lie. And he ratchets up the personal expectations. Like, like the opposite of Davidson grade deflation. Okay, he's ratcheting it up. And he tells his audience, he tells us, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Or, again, you could flip the gender here. It's not meant to be. It's meant to be inclusive, not exclusive. You could say, everyone who looks at a man has already committed adultery with him in her heart. Then as if the single life weren't hard enough, Jesus goes after the married couples and eliminates almost all the divorce on demand loopholes and says, I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And again, you could flip that and say anyone who divorces her husband makes him commit adultery. Okay? And once again, several of us here, externally, internally, cross our arms, harumph. Sid, just what I thought. Christianity is so conservative, so behind the times. Again, repress your sexuality. Come on. No understanding of marital compatibility or sexual urges. I mean, no ability to be human up in here. Come on, let's go. But what Jesus is saying here, again, is more nuanced than whether it's the 21st century takeaway He's offending the 21st century takeaway as much as he's offending the 1st century takeaway. Okay, and again, I'm going to narrow our focus down to a singular Greek word. The word translated lust or lustful intent. 
in verse 28 is this really interesting word, epithumia. Epithumia, okay? That's an interesting word to choose to talk about sex. There's a lot of words to talk about sex, no matter what language, what we're talking about here. But especially in Greek. And he uses a word that is oftentimes uh, in the common literature of the day, and especially in the Bible, refers more often to money than to sex. Okay? Epithumia literally means over-desire. Epi means over, thumia means will or desire. So it's really interesting. He, this is the same word that when the 70 scholars got together in the library of Alexander and they translated the Old Testament, they didn't use this word for adultery in the seventh commandment. They used epithumia for the 10th commandment in the word covet. It's, co- it's about coveting possessions. That's usually how it's used. According to Tim Keller, epithumia, this kind of over-desire coveting, is like this kind of form of greed. It's all about wanting something for yourself on your own terms, not to share. You've got to have to have it. You'll do anything to get it. And it's something that you think about all the time, that you're constantly kind of going over in your mind present and future experiences, present and future ambitions that you have about it. Okay? You're kind of constantly thinking about it. And so applying epithumia, this idea of over-desire or covetousness, to sex, lust for sexual pleasure is different than good God-given sex. Okay? By definition, it's different. Does that make sense? Okay? Because lust is selfish. Lust is addictive. Lust is fantasy-driven. Like orge. Epithumia lust is something good that escalates by allowing a passing urge, a passing feeling, a passing view to roost, to make a home in the, heart be- in the beams of my heart roof, so to speak, okay? Also, like anger, the Bible is extremely nuanced about sex. And I again feel like I have to apologize to you on behalf of the church and of Christians who have done really well-meaning things but have said really poor things, okay? I've got to apologize in the way that we sometimes speak about sex. Some of you have heard directly or indirectly from Christians that God hates sex or that he finds sex dirty in some way or sex is the one unforgivable sin or your sexual abuse is your fault or unimportant and those lies could not be farther from the truth. They just couldn't be. With more time, I would take you through the whole Bible, right? And talk to you about the many different ways that God is wildly explicit, blushingly explicit. The translators can't even go there explicit, okay? About sex, okay? About rejoicing and celebrating in selfless married sex. But for the sake of time, let's just start with the beginning. Garden of Eden. First man, Adam, is with God in the cool of the day, going on walks. And God says to Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. Wait, you're with God. He makes a woman for him, Eve. And then standing there naked, face to face, Adam speaks. And the first poem in the history of the world is an erotic couplet. Okay? He is talking about sex. He is the Marvin Gaye of the Garden of Eden. Okay? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's about sex. Okay? And then 
look, some of you have directly or indirectly heard something wrong or very hurtful about divorce, same kind of category mistake, well-meaning Christians. And I want to apologize for that too. And I want to say that there are biblical grounds for divorce. Okay? And sexual morality is one of them, sex outside of that particular marriage bond. But also in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we see the biblical ground of abandonment. Okay, abandonment is a spouse leaving the other without that other spouse's agreement or consent. And that plays out in many different situations in this world. In particular, domestic abuse. So I just want to clarify that because sometimes people get that wrong. Okay? So, but look, I understand that remarriage, divorce maybe has some potential relationship to you, but you're single. Except for like four people in the room. Okay, so like... (laughs) What does this have to do with my life, Sid? How does Jesus suggest? How does Jesus suggest that we handle lust in our singleness? Right? What do we do outside of marriage? Verses twenty-nine through thirty, we get Jesus' suggestion. Again, it is so over the top, and is meant to be exaggerated to make a point. Okay? If the people in this room took Jesus' command right here, right now, seriously, we'd all be pirates. Do you realize that? We would all have an eye patch and a hook for a hand. And I would be the captain of that pirate ship. Okay? Look, he can't do that. He isn't saying this is exactly how you deal with lust. He's making a point yet again. He's saying, men and women, we need to get seriously creative about the ways in which we direct our desires. We need to redirect our desires away from isolated body parts. Away from getting people to do whatever we want, however we want them to do it. And we need to redirect that towards back to real human beings. Human beings that disagree with us, that um, disappoint us, that have eye bags and actual stomach fat and cellulite. We need to go back to those real people. Specifically, that may look like for some of you getting a filter for your computer or talking to someone about the string of romances that you've had or the way that you can never actually quite commit to dating ever. Okay, or maybe that looks like engaging my senses in something less about me, like community service, being in a community and serving the people around me, getting that sensate experience, moving my desire towards others in that way. Or more generally, this just might mean practicing relationships where I adjust to somebody else instead of weighing whether they've adjusted well enough to me. That's behind lust. Because lust is so much bigger than sex. Because it's not primarily about sex or sexual desire. It's about selfishness and power over other people. Okay, and we see this in the hashtag MeToo movement, okay? According to many of the leading voices, sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual abuse, the worst offenses had to do with the way that men abused their power, okay? How they took advantage of a workplace power imbalance to enact their lust over women. Perhaps the narrator of Wendell Berry's short story puts Jesus' definition of lust all this together well for us, okay? She says it this way. Lust is selfish. It seeketh its own. Desire without selfishness, with self-denial, that kind of desire, is only praise. It is even love. So the problem is not desire. It's what we're doing with our desire. But the first century's most pious people thought, like many of us do here, that he or she could resolve to lust no more. Okay? 
So some of us have that plan, filters, accountability group, a little community service, hanging it all and marrying a hot doctor from Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> That'll solve all my problems, okay? All set, except, ah, uh, tragedy, okay? Past struggles, shoot, forgot about those, right? Or maybe if patterns hold future struggles, right? Oh, whoops, one more future wrong look again, a double tick I shouldn't have taken. Doomed again. But what if Jesus again fulfilled this law too? What if he fulfilled the one about adultery as well as murder? What if that were true? What if God became a man, Jesus of Nazareth, and lived a life of heart-level purity and died the death to rescue the very people most filled with lust, the very people most lusted after? What if I could be completely known, nakedly who I am, covered over with nothing, and loved, not just loved, rejoiced over, enjoyed, appreciated. Here's what this means to me. How this all circles back to my confusion standing there in Turkey and Rome, okay? Has to do with another moment and another break, okay? When I was new to Christianity, the summer after I became a Christian, I heard a dating talk. And the speaker talked about how we rushed into intimacy too fast, Okay, so we physically and emotionally misuse somebody and ourselves. Many of you know this firsthand. I know this firsthand. And it wounds us, right? And to make the point about the wounding, the speaker took a paper heart and a hole puncher, okay? And literally, I'm not kidding you not, punched every time he talked about some transgression, clicked the heart, okay? And it was just dead silent. You could hear the click-clack metal of the hole puncher, and you watch, everyone just sat there and transfixed, watched the little like, paper circles kind of flip-flop down to the ground. Then the speaker said something extremely foolish, if that weren't foolish enough. He said, and these holes in our hearts caused by sin can never be healed, and they will be with us forever. And then after this, after this comment, I like totally lost track of the talk. I just blanked. <laughs> Maybe some of you are in that place right now. <laughs> I lost a bit lost. Uh, and then we went on this extremely awkward group date where we putt-putted. Um, <laughs> and this is even better, true story. Uh, about the eighth hole, there were two ducks. One duck mounted the other duck with lots of loud quacking. <laughs> true story, group date after the, after the talk. I wish I had, had sat there and said, click, click. <laughs> that duck heart will never be the same. But anyway, based on the Bible, okay, in my Christian life, I would love to finish the dating talk right here, right now. Okay? The way I wish that I finished it for myself, basically. Okay? Jesus shows up. He shows up even in our worst moments, even when we're doing the thing that we promised we'd never, ever do again. Even those moments of naked anger and raw shame that do feel like we're getting punched. There and then, Jesus shows up in those holes. And do you know what Jesus does when he reaches out and he shows up? He covers over our nakedness. He holds us in his arms and he sings over us. He sings over our shame. Bone of my bone, flesh then slowly but surely, Jesus bends down to the floor. He eases himself down on his hands and knees. And he begins to pick up the circular pieces of our hearts 
and one by one, ever so gently, Jesus presses them back into place permanently. Pastor, singer-songwriter, Vito Ayudo, he recently wrote this. I've climbed Machu Picchu in Peru. <laughs> Should I butchered that? I've visited the Parthenon in Rome. I've watched it snow in deep woods in rural Michigan. But nothing is as beautiful as a human being. Nothing is as beautiful as a human being. Jesus, who created all of those places, who has seen all of those places, and then created and seen us, who has been on his hands and knees over the heart scraps of anger and loss that we have. You know what he says to you? Nothing, nothing is as beautiful as you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your words to us. Thank you for the time that we get to have where we think about your words to us. I just pray that you'd undo some damage done to us, done by us, um, done in this half hour. Um, And I just pray that you would just be, um, show us who you are, even in the song, even the rest of this week, even tonight. Remind us of the way that you care about us and love us. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.